HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by Forever Cheese, Masters of the Mediterranean. For more information, visit forevercheese.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at Heritage Radio Network. Hello, this is your host, Dana Cowan. Welcome to Speaking Broadly, a show where brilliant women in the food world share stories about their lives and careers that provide lessons and inspiration for anyone looking to succeed in any industry at all. Today, I am thrilled to have Julia Sherman as my guest. You may know Julia from her extraordinary publishing project, Salad for President. She is a cook, an artist, a photographer, a writer, a a gardener, a thinker, an activist, and I am delighted to share her stories with all of you today. I'm I'm really interested in how you transformed from an MFA, you know, grad student to this amazing life that you've created for yourself. Because I think a lot of people feel, you know, you're an artist and you're going to create art and you're going to go on a very traditional track. So can you tell me a little bit about, like, um, what were you thinking when you went into that MFA program, and then what happened on the other side that began to lead you where you are today? Wow, that's a a long story, but um, I think that even before an MFA program, I went to Rhode Island School of Design, and um, in some ways, I always felt like people treated the decision to go to an art school or to get an arts education as an unconventional one, as a less clear path, as um, a riskier choice rather than getting a more generalized liberal arts education. And I did go to RISD and Brown, so it was both, obviously. But um, in a lot of ways, after I finished school, I studied photography for my undergrad. But when I finished school, I realized that the lessons that I learned as an artist, and I, I, I recognized this early on, even though I never imagined that my future would exist beyond the fine art art world. But um, I realized that a lot of the 
skills that you learn as an artist are the things that other people in every industry are constantly seeking in uh, you know their own colleagues and themselves and the people they hire, which would be sort of an endless resourcefulness, independence, self-motivation, creative problem-solving. Um, how, how do you think you cultivate that within yourself? Because um, it's something that you have naturally. Do you think it's a cultivatable hmm. set of skills? Uh, to a degree, I think. Um, I think the the part that's really easy to cultivate over, you know, whatever four year period, a two year period, whatever in in school or in that kind of a community environment is the criticality and the ability to take criticism and to think critically about yourself, to verbalize what your what your ideas are, and to be really clear and understand that the only way for you to execute or to communicate what your your vision is is to use language and um, and to be have a really thick skin about that. So. I think, you know, at school, I spent like five hours a day sitting in a room with my peers and professors tearing each other apart (laughs) in a really constructive way. So, you know, I I think that kind of creative critical thinking is something I take to every single, um, you know, project or, um, and I don't know, every single scenario that I'm working in. And I think other people really appreciate that. I think that one of the things that struck me was when you were involved in art art school, you were part of a big community. Mm-hmm. And when you were growing up, you weren't really so much part of a community. So I feel like the notion of isolation and community has driven your work. Mm-hmm. Um, do you want to talk about like how that's motivated you and sort of moved you forward? Yeah. Um, huh. Well, I think um, there the. F- Having spent the first portion of my life, my adolescence, um, feeling very isolated and not having... I grew up in Manhattan. I went to an Upper East Side private school. I I didn't feel that I identified with the people around me, um, but I knew there was something bigger. Like most high school students or middle school students, they on a conscious level, they know there's something bigger, but they have no access to it. So there's that kind of tension and frustration. And I think... um, from a very early age, I learned how to be alone and how to um, how to think for myself and to know that, I mean, for better or worse, I just didn't have the ability to blend in. So uh, it wasn't so much a choice. But, um, you know, leaving that very small insular bubble and moving on to go, I spent my first year of college at Oberlin uh, College in Ohio and just sort of walked into this place and I was like, oh my God, like I have friends and I, you know, this isn't going to be so hard. It's not going to be so bad. Um, and a lot of the things that I felt what, you know, people punished me for when I was younger were suddenly my greatest strength. So, um, you know, I still, I, you know, it's funny, the quote I brought today is kind of about this idea of like, Uh, living a life, and I think a lot of creative people are this way, where you're, on the one hand, extremely extroverted, and I mean, I could talk all day long. Anybody who knows me knows that, and, you know, that can be that, that, but in the same time, I can also spend, like, four days not talking to anyone at all, and I need that balance because I 
spend a lot of time working and thinking on my own. So even with my current job, I'm the creative director at Chopped, the salad company. And um, even there, like the first thing I said when I came in was, I can't work in an office environment. I need to spend like long stretches of time alone. And I'll be doing that from my house and I'll come in for all the meetings or whatever. But this is how I'll be the most productive. So for me, like I've always had a need to cultivate community. And I'm sure that comes from having wanted that so badly as a kid and not being able to find it. And now like the sense of satisfaction I have when I have a potluck or if I have an event at a museum or, or I make a salad with somebody in their home and I'm just sitting there thinking this person is incredibly cool and I can't believe I got to, they, I got in this room. You know, those are all maybe the, maybe those are all my efforts to undo some of that, um, uh, involuntary isolation from my past. But I think you, you also have, have talked about how, you know, um, after, after grad school, you know, there was a lot of comp- competition mm-hmm. and um, it didn't feel this, you didn't feel that same sense of camaraderie that we're all in this together just exploring. But you found that in the kitchen. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so the notion that the work that you do brings together community, which is something that you found in school, and cooking, which facilitated the, the conversation and then has led you forward, I think it, it was um, such a great thing to find, to discover, and that that sort of shaped you. Do you want to talk a little bit about like the gathering and your role as a host mm-hmm. and sure. how you're the host of your own life, which I just I love <laughs> that notion. Yeah, I mean, I think part of it is for, was for me in the big picture, looking back on why, looking, looking at it all now, sort of an aerial view, I feel like the key to my happiness at this moment is that I carved out my own little niche and I'm not in competition. I'm, I'm cool with competition. I'm competition with myself 24 hours a day, but I am put myself in a role where I support other people. So when I write about someone else, I'm, I'm choosing to write about somebody who I want other people to know about, whose projects I want to support, who's, uh, you know, it's all, a, it's all positive. Um, if I'm, if I'm relating to other chefs or, you know, I'm not a chef, I consider myself a cook, but if I'm working with a chef, like we're not in competition. I don't have a restaurant. Um, you know, the, we're, we're, if we're working together, we're collaborating. And so, and, and same with artists and and at this point as well. So I think, you know, in the art world, the realities of the New York commercial art world after I finished my MFA were such that the time that we spent in one another's studios and those conversations that were really, I, I understand now, that was my whole, my the majority of my interest in being an artist and being <laughs> and making those decisions is that I had had the privilege of being in school for the majority of my life, and so. Um, and then when I moved to Los Angeles, my husband and I opened an artist-run space in front of my uh, studio, and so that was part of my practice. But even then, I never thought I was like, oh, you know, we're, it's just a fun project. But I never really considered that the main thing. In the back, I was trying to figure out how to make objects I could sell, and it was like just not coming to me. Um, but all the while, spending most of my time facilitating other people's shows promoting their shows, getting people in there to talk about it, doing screenings, doing talks, all these things, no money exchanged hands. And then those events would end at our home down the road, and I would go into the garden and make some totally haphazard meal. And everyone thought I was like, 
you know, I was the best cook out of the group of the friends, but I never thought that that would lead to anything professional. So it all was really intuitive. And when I finished grad school, I had this little studio that was on the sixth floor of a storage facility under the Manhattan Bridge. This was the best. Uh, it was $2 a square foot. So this was reason enough oh to be in there with, um, it, you know, it was mostly storage units. And then on my floor, I was next to 24 hour energy and a CrossFit gym. And then this like stoner guy who thought he was revolutionary, revolutionizing the world of design by making round pillows. So this was like my, my new community. And I was just sort of like, I, I never wanted to go to the studio. When I was there, all I was thinking about was what I was going to pick up on the way home to cook. And and it was, you know, a slow evolution. But I finally realized that I didn't, if I didn't want to be there, I needed to stop going there. And what was the thing I wanted to be doing? Well, if it was cooking, how do I make that? How do I make that the work? I you you did have some paying jobs. Like you're talking about things you weren't paid for. Yeah. And um, some of those paying jobs... I'm fascinated by you were um, was you were a cupcake icer. Oh yes, I got fired though. You did well. It was weird because not silly. smooth enough. Or? Well, I don't think it was my technique. I I was told that I was I socialized with the customers too much, and they didn't fire me, but they stopped adding me to the schedule. <laughs> That's very passive aggressive. <laughs> so that is not a good management lesson. So I know but, um, now. Now I I have a particular disdain for cupcakes. <laughs> yes, I completely understand why. But then you also worked on. Uh, as a photographer on the sets of horror movies, which yes. what an amazing interlude! Can you t- like recount some of those tales for me? Yeah, um, well, it was all very um, fateful. But in I, my final semester in uh, school, when I was living in Providence, I had it really in my mind. I had worked for the photographer Gregory Crutzen, whose photographs are cinematic, and he constructs entire film crews to create a single still image. And uh, we would all go up to Mass Mocha and on their sound stages where he produces all the photography. And um, I was really into and excited by the, the set design aspect of it and the art direction aspect of it. And uh, so when there were... Rhode Island passed a law or a uh, tax incentive to bring more film production to Providence and um, I jumped on this opportunity trying to get figure out what I was going to do after school and uh, I asked if I could be in the art department and they sneakily suggested that well they would instead of having me work in the art department I could be the sort of the PA that took photos as I was finishing my photography degree And they had asked if they could use some of my photos as set dressing. So for the teenage girl's um, bedroom, it would be uh, my artwork would be, you know, her her artwork, whatever. So basically, I ended up working, taking photos, like trying to figure out uh, what an on-set photographer does. This was like a New Line Cinema movie. It was like this was a real movie. It had like Amber Tamblyn in it. It was it was the whole thing. And uh, I had no clue what I was doing. And then basically when the the film had to sign a contract with the union, I got grandfathered into local 600 Cinematographers Guild. Um, and then uh, from there, we and my husband and I ended up moving to Los Angeles. And I got into working on B-horror films, which was just the craziest and most at the time it was such a great compliment to my art practice I was around the craziest people and it really tapped into my my 
fantasy life because uh, I had explained to, to you when we talked about this last, like you work on these movies and everyone knows they're making a horrible, horrible movie. And so nobody reads the script. And so you can just make it up as you go along in your head of what's happening. And as the photographer, the stills can tell any story, you know? So um, it was it was a really, um, it was an amazing first kind of, I don't know. Like if it was, a, it was great for me to have a job that was so far outside of the art world, and that it was inspiring me to go back and make my work. And then I would have sort of stretches of time where I didn't have to work on a film. And then I'd go and I'd work these like, you know, fourteen-hour days. I, I love that you really you were able to create an alternate narrative in your mind. So there was the narrative of the movie, <laughs> but then you know the Julia Sherman hour, yeah, <laughs> or whatever. To this day, my father has a gigantic blown-up print of one of my photos of an actor in his underpants tied to a chair um, and, and spitting blood in, like, a, a you know, like, beautiful spray across, like, through the, the dappled light. My dad has this in his office. And that, I hope that doesn't have some <laughs> subliminal meaning, like he's trying to scare people. He just oh, wants to support his daughter. I don't think anyone goes in his office besides him. <laughs> <laughs> um, so let's talk about the beginning of Salad for President, which I, I love discovering that it was really your wonderful husband's um, motivating idea. How did, how did the um, Salad for President come about? Um, well, it was clear that I was needing to make a change and I wasn't feeling excited about pushing in the art world. And I was kind of feeling that, you know, I think a lot of women, I was part of a writing group at the time that another uh, a Brown alum had started called The Slow Interview. And um, it was probably 20 women around the world. And we would have these really simple questions that we would that she would pose once a month and we would all send her our answers. I love that idea. It was amazing. Recirculate them. And we were mostly like 28 to 30 or 27 to 30. And looking back on it, I realized that we were all freaking out and we were melting down and destroying our own lives because basically it was like a bunch of type A, super smart women from like opera singers, writers for the New York Times. Like uh, the woman who started it is a palliative care doctor. Um, and then artists and curators and academics, whatever. And uh, we were all we had all worked that long to get to the point. You know, like I had done this MFA program at Columbia, which was like this holy grail. And then I was having shows. I had performed at the MoMA. I had done, you know, all of these amazing things, but I wasn't happy. And it was echoed across all these disciplines. And so through that, I really realized it through having to articulate it amongst a you know group of my own peers and through writing I was like oh shit like I don't this isn't where I want to be um I got to make a change and so it was my husband who was like you have a weird obsessive salad making practice like I know you don't think it's anything and you think you're just making dinner but I've nobody cooks this much and and we you know we'd have ten people over for dinner three nights a week and that kind of thing, and he and he's like you know you're you're a writer you're a photographer and you're doing this anyway will you please start documenting it and I have never read food blogs it's not a world I you know I am not proud of it to this day though I'm just I'm not like super up on those it's not it's not my world exactly and so in my mind I was just like no I mean I don't know who would read that. And, it, and uh, he told me, 
because he knows me this well, he said, uh, if you start this blog, and I'll set it up for you. We set it up as just a Tumblr to start. If you start this blog and you start writing about what you're doing, I promise you will get a book deal within five years. And then I just went on, like, manic salad (laughs) mode. (laughs) And I was making, like, five salad recipes a day, posting them. And then at that point, my food photography was just terrible. So I ended up, you know, really focusing and learning learning how to take pictures of food and style food. And I just was so happy that I was talking about it all the time when we'd go to art events or dinners or whatever. And then people would ask me what I was working on, thinking, like, where's your next show or whatever. And I'd be, and I would say, I'm actually um, salad blogging. And they'd be like, <laughs> what is that? And then everyone, like, wants to know, like, are you, do you have, like, one foot out of this world? Are you, like, daring to diversify, you know? And so I just, I found I was, like, so happy to just talk about this thing that wasn't even something yet, that the energy snowballed and then artists started saying, well, I make the best salad and, you know, you need to know about my salad because mine's better than yours because they're all crazy competitive. And, um, and that's how the concept of me going and making a salad with them, talking about their practice, what's, how do you think about your whole creative life, not just the objects you make? What are the things you're upset? Like, what's your salad? What's your thing? And do you, do you feel when you look at the salads of artists that you see their work within the leaves or the colors or the composition? And is there something to that? Or no, actually, they're just, you know, hungry and feeding people. It totally depends. I mean, some, there are some people who... I mean, it's a personality. Like, there's different, there's so many different approaches to making work. I mean, there's people who are really intuitive and impetuous and, like, nonverbal and just, like, you know, uh, feel their way through it. There are people who will write you a million emails leading up about what each ingredient is and how we're going to slice it in advance. There's, there's, you know, so it's more of, it is like a litmus test in a certain way. Um, but I can't say across the board. It's like, um, a, you know, a full-on insight into like the depths of some. Right, it's not Freudian somehow. The I, it, it can the be, but I think Freud. I think the biggest picture is that the, the common thread is that most artists really a understand why I'm asking them to do this. Mm-hmm. B, they're into salad particu- in particular because it is a an aesthetic experience. It's about. Um, it's kind of like making a painting or making a work of art where I'm not saying a salad is a work of art, but you know, you're, you're juxtaposing ingredients or materials. You're putting two things together to make something better than where you started. And, but you're also, there's a point where you've gone too far <laughs> and there's a, there's a point you where have you to haven't take off enough. the spinach leaf. Right. The, so all that, it's as close as I ever got to understanding how my abstract painter friends, what they do in the studio. It's fascinating. <laughs> yeah. Um, so today, I don't think it, it doesn't feel like as much of a blog moment. When when you began, there were other bloggers, but this space um, seemed like it was growing. Mm. It doesn't feel that way to me now. Um, if you were to start sort of collecting and wanting to share to a wider audience, do you think this is the form that you would start with, or do you think you would start with a different form? It's funny, because the other day my husband was like, just to play devil's advocate, he, he said, well, "I don't. Do you even need a blog anymore?" And I, I'm, I'm wary about the word blog because I actually don't think it's a blog. Um, it's an editorial platform. It's not a daily journaling. It's not 
personal. It's not um, about my own cooking explorations. Or uh, it's really an interview and a profile on a, a creative individual in a, the photography and a recipe. So. Um, in some ways, I don't think of it as a blog, but I use that for lack of kind of a better term. I could call it a website, but that seems very commercial. Um, I do. I, I one piece of advice I would give other people, or that I think about, which I, I can't say I would necessarily do it differently, but I haven't set myself up for with a format that's easy to maintain, and it takes a really long time to meet with those people. I sit with them for like five hours most times. I have to edit all the photography. I have to I have to transcribe our conversation. I have to edit. I'm a, and it's just me. So edit the text. Then I have to write something that I feel does them justice because I'm always terrified that they're going to like get it wrong. And then publish it and promote it. So for each post, it's like at a certain point before I had another job, before I had all these other projects, that was feasible and now it's getting difficult I don't know that I need to keep up with the pace I was keeping up with before I think personally you know a lot of people probably just think it's an Instagram account and uh, and that I do all these events I think personally it feels important that it's rooted in something that has a lot more substance and meat I would not be happy if this was just an Instagram account but it, it sounds to me like the advice you were about to suggest that you would give to somebody is that they should think about all of the work involved. Yeah. So if you're setting something up, know that you only want one image and you only want one question right. or you want one recipe. But in fact, setting yourself up and recognizing the amount of work with, I mean, you do like 10 pictures all edited on a after a long shoot and long conversation and mm -hmm. all those pieces actually add up and they may not be in service of your final goal, which is to share... I mean, depending on what your blog right. is, it's in service of your final goal, but right. it might not be in service of somebody else's. Right. And also that um, blogging, which is a terrible term, I think, because there were so many, and mm -hmm. um, so it lost any type of sense of um, specialness. But it really is to think about what you're doing as, like, is it a project? Like, what's the largest thing you can conceive of? Right. And for you, it's a it's a platform. It's a way for you to interact with the world and have a way to share what you're interacting with because you do it in real time in events, but this is a way to catalog and then share these things for people who can't be there in real time. Right, and that's why, like, the book is so is exciting because that's a, another form and another way to, to share that and to kind of like package it and encapsulate it. So, you know, what I, I do consider the blog the um, kind of the starting point of a bunch of rambling projects that all lead back to this really loose framework that has something to do with salad and art. And so without the blog, I mean, the blog to me is like, it is the full expression of like how I think and my, how I put things together and my aesthetic and my photography and all of that. Um, it shows people that I can do just the photography side or mm -hmm. I can do just the interviewing side. It's also about defining what my community is. So when I, when you look at all the people who've been featured, they're not all visual artists. They're musicians. They're like activists. They're people who I consider, I feel, are artists, but they wouldn't necessarily define themselves that way. And I think, you know, it's important to draw that parameters around it. It's not chefs. It's not a... Right. It's not a um, super insidery food world thing, even though maybe sometimes the events that I do fall into that or, or you know, whatever. But I think um, 
figuring out what's your calling card, like make something that you're really proud of. And, and, you know, I, do I wish that I was the kind of person who just like rattled things off and did a Tumblr, more of a Tumblr kind of format, where it's just a bunch of bite-sized content. Sure. But it's just never been, I have like a certain, I have like ingrained in me and it is the art school side, certain like level of production value. And I'm, and I'm a slave to it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, um, I think I always love to take a moment to ask, um, my guests to read something. So we stop a dialogue and just recite something that, or read something that's very meaningful to you. So why don't we, um, do that and before we do a commercial break. Cool. Um, this is a quote from a writing by Salman Rushdie about the Wizard of Oz. And I loved this interpretation of um, a film that everybody knows. Anyone who has swallowed the script writer's notion that this is a film about the superiority of home over away, that the moral of The Wizard of Oz is as sickly sweet as an embroidered sampler, east-west, home is best, there's no place like home, would do well to listen to the yearning in Judy Garland's voice as her face tilts upwards towards the sky. What she expressed here and what she embodies with the purity of an archetype is the human dream of leaving. The dream is at least as powerful as its countervailing dream of roots. At the heart of The Wizard of Oz is the tension between these two dreams. But as the music swells and that big, clean voice flies into the anguished longings of the song, can anyone doubt which message is stronger? In its most potent emotional moment, this is unarguably a film about the joys of going away, of leaving the grayness and entering the color of making a new life in the place where there isn't any trouble. Over the rainbow is, or ought to be, the anthem of all the world's migrants, all those who go in search of a place where the dreams that you dare to dream really do come true. It is a celebration of escape, a grand pan to the uprooted self, a hymn, the hymn to elsewhere. That is so beautiful. Uh, And what does that mean to you, like in just a sentence? Um, I have a really, I think it's about the tension that I feel every day, which is this, um, it's two things. It's an immense wanderlust and and knowing that I'll never be satisfied. I will always want to see more and consume more and go go to new places. And then this um, passion for home and being exactly where I am and being in the moment. And I also love... um, this interpretation that he has of a character that he's proposing is entirely a, a woman who is seeming, you know, in knee socks and seemingly um, childish, and he, who's actually um, who's actually being misunderstood. And with that, we're going to take a break, and then I'll be back with my guest, Julia Sherman. Today's program was brought to you by Forever Cheese, masters of the Mediterranean. Forever Cheese is dedicated to sourcing the absolute best and most authentic products from Italy, Spain, Portugal, and Croatia. They started out with just one cheese, then four, and never knew that they would have the breadth of product and the richness of working with so many fantastic producers across the Mediterranean. Michelle Buster and Pierluigi Cini have the singular vision to be the best they could be and bring products never before seen to the U.S. 
They were sure that with education and sampling, there was a market for such a myriad of handcrafted traditional and non-cheeses and specialty foods. Pierre Luigi comes from a family of cheesemakers, and after teaching Michelle all he knew, together they set out one day at a time to make a difference not only in their country, but in the lives of each of their producers. For more information, visit forevercheese.com. This is Dana Cowan on Speaking Broadly, and today my guest is the artist, cook, photographer, writer, all-around talent, Julia Sherman. And, Julia, we've talked a lot about, um, you know, how you've come to do this amazing work with Salad for President at this idea. We haven't talked about food. Salad is food. So <laughs> right. I feel like let's turn our attention to actual food. Mm-hmm. Um, because you do cook a lot, right? Mm-hmm. You do make a great salad. And when I was at Food and Wine, you did an amazing salad for us, um, which I think was marinated mushrooms and shaved artichokes. Yeah. And um, a, a really great uh, combination. So how are you feeling about food right now? How do you feel about salad? Are you in, as in love with salad today as you were when you started this work? Yes. Um, the part of the job that I didn't quite anticipate is the the eating out and the food world stuff that involves a lot of it involves restaurants and that and you know eating in restaurants and knowing about restaurants and especially if you're going to be friends with chefs and I actually don't like eating in restaurants uh and wait a minute we need to pause why is that well i mean that's a little bit extreme but um well first of all i just always feel like it's a missed creative opportunity for myself (laughs) (laughs) what does that mean exactly (laughs) that i could be home cooking (laughs) or that like uh you know i don't know and it's um I'm so. You have the opposite of mofo. You have like homefo. I know. <laughs> I know. And, um, you know, so I, and also. Um, or no, foam ho. Fear of, fear of not being home. Fear, yeah, yeah, right. And then, um, and I also find like I get really exhausted by by the food that I eat out. I find it like, I mean, just I'm used to eating like kind of cleaner and fresher and um I'm very particular about my ingredients and all that kind of stuff. So um, that part has been surprising to me. And I do a lot of traveling for work. And so if I spend a week away from my kitchen, I inevitably don't feel awesome. Um, But uh, I love salad. I think that the thing about salad is that it's really open-ended and it's it's impossible to define. I've spent a lot of time trying to nail down the definition, felt like, you know, my job if I was going to call myself (laughs) the president of the topic. Um, And it's not defined by being raw. It's not defined by being dressed in a vinaigrette. It's not, it's really slippery. It's a very slippery definition because you can always think it's not even vegan. It's not vegetarian. I mean, you've got recipes that have fish. You have recipes But I love thinking of new combinations and there's an infinite amount of like information to learn. And I also just am so fascinated by plants and vegetables and that's such a big part of it for me. And um, And what what fascinates you about them? uh, Well, I think the different the fact that they completely morph over the course of their lives and that you can appreciate them in completely different ways from beginning to end so you know a fennel that you would start with the bulb and then 
by the end, and then you you know at some point you're you're focused more on the fronds, and then you're harvesting the pollen, and you know something like that, or that that it's totally different when it's raw or when it's been cooked or prepared. So I mean the infinite the infinite variations is really exciting to me, and it feels like a medium that I could never actually exhaust. Um, so I stand by salad. I'm really into soup <laughs> too. Um, I know. And what do you dream of? I hear you know. I hear carnage in the dream. Uh, you were once quoted as saying, you know... I actually dream of, of cheeseburgers. cheeseburgers. I, do, I did an outward bound when I was in high school. And, you know, they, like, do, they make you stay alone in the woods at night. Um, and, like, they don't give you any food. I never understood why they didn't give you any food. I was like, it's bad enough I have to be alone <laughs> in the woods. And there's, like, but why can't I eat some peanut butter? But so that's, like, part of the um, asceticism of it. But uh, I spent... I mean, you were supposed to have an introspective, like, deep uh, moment. And all I could think about was cheeseburgers. And since then, I was just like, I think cheeseburgers are like somewhere deep in my subconscious that like and maybe the salad is some sort of like exorcism <laughs> that or something. I don't know. Um, so with the in cooking with artists, do you have a, a favorite sort of time that you cooked with them or your best salad ever? Just watching them compose it. Does anything really stand out in your mind? Hmm. Um. I, there's a woman who's in my book named Madeline Fitzpatrick who Christine Milkey introduced me to. Um, and, you know, from the beginning of this project, Christine was like, you have got to meet Madeline if you're going to talk about salad. So this woman is a painter and an artist, and her hu- her husband, Evan Shively, was a, is a chef, um, but he also has a, he's an arborist. He has a wood company. They live in Inverness, which is my favorite part of the United States. Um, and they live in an old cult community that they converted. And the, the images in the book are really some of the most special ones, but they have this wild, wild sense of home decor, and their kitchen is like a rainforest, and she has you know, all of these rare orchids that they actually send them to an orchid camp, like a babysitter um, for the winter. So in the winter, they go to this special woman's house where she has the right temperature to keep them alive. Then they come back um, to, the, to their kitchen when they're ready. That's amazing. It's amazing. It's, they're very, just eccentric in all the right ways for me, personally. And <laughs> these are the people that um, I actually made my husband come back with me another time. We went and visited them because I was like, I just want you to know what my life goals are. Like, I just need to show you and these that's people. It. Yeah. But so, so Madeline's, uh, aside from her amazing painting practice, she's had a wild seeded salad garden forever. And so she lets all the plants go to seed and you can't step anywhere on the property without stepping on chervil or ice lettuce or all these rare plants you've never even, you could never buy. And so her salad is the same every night. Her husband, Evan, makes these beautiful, you know, they're best friends with David Kinch. He makes these beautiful meals. You, I, I mean, they're the best best food I've ever had and then every every single meal is finished with this salad she makes that probably has a hundred different ingredients and it's but just when you say the it. salad is the same what do you mean by that oh well, that's a good point it's actually never the same and it's always different but it's always just she never uh, she never seasons it with anything the dressing is always this like three hundred dollar balsamic and olive oil and a little salt and you eat it with your hands or chopsticks and that's the rule um, so I it's like always, oh, I love it. So visceral. Yeah. So it's always that mixed, it's not greens because it includes all these flowers. It's like, it's just a fantasy salad. Um, and it's really about tasting everything in the garden. And it's, um, it's, it's everything to me. It's like the most beautiful experience. 
Well, I think that leads so well into the 30-second challenge. Mm. And as you know, I'm going to ask you in, in 30 seconds to name as many vegetables as you possibly can. There's no winner or loser. It's just like a fun um, memory test because for all you listeners, she doesn't get to have notes. But she does know the question in advance. So um, let's hear your favorite Vegetables. Oh, wait, favorite or just what comes to mind? What comes to mind? Okay. Carrots, chervil, celery, rutabaga, beets, um, dill, ice lettuce, radishes, watermelon radishes, daikon, pea shoots, um, tarragon, mitsuba, parsley, alliums, um, kale, chard, uh, cilantro, Oh, this is, why is this hard? Um, Done. Ah, why is it hard? <laughs> you know what? I was just trying to walk through my garden. <gasps> I love that. Well, I, I liked how you had the groups together because yeah. you could hear, like, you know, radish. I school radish. Yeah. Of course. I started at the farmer's market, and then I was like, no, go to the garden. It's, uh, it's easier. <laughs> I like how a visual person comes up with the words, right? right? You're just the foot, you're following the footsteps of your garden or the, right. or the, um, the farmer's market. Uh, so... Let's talk um, a little bit about your activism around food, because I feel like a lot of the events that you've had recently, Mm -hmm. you're really trying to change the world. And in a way, you've opened our minds with Salad for President, opened our minds to these beautiful artists and what they're doing and the food that they're making. But you're also, you know, you have a point of view that goes beyond that. I thought, you know, it's it's, um, probably not for nothing that there's a a notion about the immigrants. Yeah, I mean, it's something, I think that um, in any industry, you know, things can become really inward thinking and very kind of small, really fast. And uh, there's a lot of excess in the food industry. And there's a lot of feeling like I'm not into indulgence just as a pure concept. It's not really the point of food for me. I'm more into food as thoughtfulness and um as a way of kind of talking about all kinds of political issues or, or art or, you know, how you, where it comes from, whatever. But um, to asking people to slow down and think a little bit. And, you know, lately I've had the chance to work on, to use these sort of dinners to say, well, at the end of the day, you often end up feeding a lot of the same people who go to all these events and you see the same people everywhere you go. And that's not unique to the food world, but, uh, all these editors of these magazines, like, they get free food all week long. And, like, that. so, you know, well, it's hard for... Sometimes it feels weird. When I want to include my friends in my events, it feels weird to charge for it because I'm also just used to cooking for people and not charging for it. It feels like a better exchange. But I have found lately that being able to charge for another cause is, like, everybody feels good about it. So I was really lucky recently to work on this project with a ceramicist named Helen Levi. It was called Potters in Protest, and she organized um, a bunch of ceramicists to donate bowls. And it was at Vinegar Hill House, and uh, Jean Adamson and Angela Dimayuga and the ladies from Little Deb's Oasis we all designed a menu together. Each of us picked a dish. And the concept was that our guests would pay a ticket price and included in that way we'd get a bowl and they would sit down and we would serve everything in that bowl. And at the end of the night, they 
had to finish their food and they had to take <laughs> the bowl home. So, you know, it was a really cool way to bring together these like artists, uh, artisans, or, you know, ceramicists and, and the food aspect and the, and the proceeds went to immigrants' rights and uh, a few immigrants' rights organizations. And then I recently put a salad for president menu item on the dimes menu and um, we did an event that benefited Planned Parenthood and, um, yeah, I think it's great. It's it's great to think of new ways to get people together mm-hmm. and raise awareness. You know, even if it's it's great to raise the dollars too, but the awareness is great. Right. And um, I love the idea of Potters for Protest because I love yeah. the idea of leaving with that bowl. Totally. And I love bowl food. Yeah. And salad obviously is bowl food, but so is hot soup. Your next, yes. I feel, I smell next soup book. coming on. <laughs> Your next. No, it's really great. I mean, I think in in a less like direct. Um, activist way. I think, you know, I make salad gardens at museums and I've done them at Mama PS1 and I've done it at the Getty. And in that context, there is also an opening up and an, 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 using salad and that putting it in an art context and not calling it art, but saying this garden, this edible garden belongs in this museum because the engagement that you're going to have in this garden is the most ideal version of what you should be doing within those walls. And institutions are so stifling and they can be so limited that people really shut down and they forget that it's that, that I do think it's political to encourage people to ask more questions because part of the reason why we're at where we're at is because people don't ask enough questions and you're told that to like be quiet because it's annoying to ask questions, you know, but I try and create these situations where people Maybe they're a little confused and they have to ask questions. So the question of like, well, why is a salad garden in a museum is like, that's just the beginning of like a whole bigger conversation about power and structure and thinking and conversation and dialogue and everything like that. So I feel that you've come to a point where you really have an enormous amount of happiness around what you're doing and you sustain that. And to me, that's a, a version of success. And and today what we're really talking about on in some way is how can women in particular, but how can we be successful? Mm -hmm. And you found a route because you live your passion and you figured out what your calling card is. But I'm wondering, what is your definition of success? Um, Oh, it's so tricky. Uh, Well, I think... um, feeling like you are challenged every day. I mean, I can only speak for myself. It is such a personal question, but for myself, it is like, it is feeling really challenged every day. I mean, every day I'm doing things that I have the, this nagging voice in the back of my head that's saying, how the hell did you get here? Or like, <laughs> does anybody know you don't know what you're doing? And, you know, and then the other side of that is like, shut up. I do know what I'm doing because I'm, I'm going to figure it out and that's what I've done before and I'm going to do it again. So I think the moments when I've not been happy have been when I haven't felt challenged, challenged in like a very extreme way. Um, so it's challenge and it's also, I like to be really, really busy and I like to have multiple balls in the air and, um, and that goes hand in hand with, that's another kind of challenge. But, um, and speaking of that, I am really interested in the work that you're doing with Chopped because, you're uh, a creator and you're working with a brand. Mm-hmm. And I think that a lot of people would be very interested in mm-hmm. taking their creative energy and marrying it to 
of a brand that they respect. Right. And they're only going to do that. But can you explain, you know, how that happened and if there's any tips for anybody else who would want to take their own creativity and, and marry it and then sort of explore the extraordinary world mm. that are other people's brands yeah. in alliance with your own? Yeah, so um, the, one of the co-founders of Chop, Tony Shore, found me on Instagram. I think he was searching for hashtag salad. <laughs> and um, for those of you who don't know, Chopped is a fast casual salad restaurant. It's been around for 15 years, so they are 16 years. So they were sort of the first in that field, and really managed to be innovative and build a company that is so anti-corporate. Actually, there are moments that maybe I wonder, like, would this be better if it was more corporate? <laughs> but I, I, I know the answer to that. But it's a real family business, and it's like. You know, it's um, it's a it's it's a very genuine and um, real place. And I think coming from the art world, I've been skeptical of any kind of corporate environment in any. I would never have imagined that I would end up there. But you know, I think that the key to the success of my relationship with them now, I've become their creative director. I started out. They uh, asked me if I would create a travel and food blog for them. They'd send me around the world making salads. Um, I would be able to shoot from my blog. And I think sometimes a lot of people think I am more successful as salad for president than I really am because they think I've somehow enabled myself to do those trips like from money from salad for president. But it's actually because I have this other job that's incredibly supportive and they're really my patrons and they have been since, since the beginning. But I think that when I started the blog and I started the Instagram, the takeaway message for someone like Tony, who didn't know me at that point, but who has become one of my best friends, um, was that here's a person who's self-motivated, who's doing this work on their own, who's like got a passion following it, like doing it to a somewhat maniacal degree. And if we hire this person, like she's already doing it. Like this is not somebody that we're going to have to like prod or, you know, try and like eat the creativity out of them because they're, they wouldn't have it any other way. So, um, I think there's, there's that, that kind of like setting the groundwork that way and that there's a certain amount of trust going into that relationship. So they know they don't have to know where I am every moment of the day because I'm working my ass off for them. And if it's not now, it'll be at one in the morning and it'll get done. So, you know, I think that's, that's an important thing. I mean, I know I'm unusually lucky because of that trust and that sort of like mind meld that we have there. But I do think that it was, it has been for me the most valuable experience of realizing that all of these skills I learned as an artist, which was to just do it yourself, do it on your own. If you don't have money, figure out the way to do it, be resourceful. Like there, you know, there's nobody's going to do it for you, you know, and that kind of thing. Um, that's really valuable for other, for for everyone else, you know. So I think, um, in a way, one of the lessons is to live in the artist mind. Yeah. Like if you artist mindset, and if you treat your work as an artist, and you bring that endeavor, which is all those things you just listed—the the hard work, the creativity, the thinking around a problem—then you are a value. And if you find the right partner, um, yeah, so who who feels like a patron, which I think is an interesting way to look at it, rather than it's a business transaction. Totally. Um, I mean, it's also know your strengths, like. I'm very honest about who I am. I didn't come in there saying, like, I'm going to be your marketing guru or I'm going to, you know, I was very clear that, like, I don't have any experience doing anything like this. Like, I've branded my own myself and I've had to push my own work and do my own PR for my whole life. But I've never done that for a brand. This is all new. So, and, you know, like, 
being really honest about that, I don't set myself up for failure because I, it doesn't mean I don't take on things that are outside of my realm of, of uh, experience, but it means that we're, we have a very clear communication and their goal is to make sure that I'm working on things I want to be working on because those are the things I will excel at. Yeah. <laughs> um, so speaking of excelling, let's uh, pay it forward. Yes. Is there a woman in the food world who you would like to nominate into the haven't renamed it yet. So the Hall of Dames. So I was thinking about it on my way here, which is a really funny full circle for me, because when I first started my project, uh, Alex Reich, a chef who owns La Vara, El Quinto Pino, Chiquito, um, and uh, she, um, she is really my first supporter. And it even happened, she's a supporter of a lot of people. She says that she's very picky, and I'm sure she is, but I think that she's insanely generous. And um, so when I first started my blog, and it was just a Tumblr, my dad was at a James Beard dinner. My parents, both my mom and my dad, were at a James Beard dinner, and Alex was cooking. And my father, of course, told her that his uh, daughter had some amazing blog, and she had to check it out. Oh, I can't believe I haven't heard of it. I mean, it was really (laughs) nothing. amazing. He's amazing, and he's my he is my main promoter but um and alex actually did check it out and she sent it along to her literary agent who contacted me and it and you know we didn't end up working together but this is before i ever met alex so i went to chiquito which was a restaurant i had always loved before i ever knew anything about the food world my parents lived around the corner and i introduced myself to her and i was so intimidated uh she's she can be intimidating she's just so accomplished and um and we became friends. And then through a casual conversation, she was like, you should be in Cherry Bomb. And I said, yes, I should be in Cherry Bomb. But I have, I've emailed them. And I'm do, it was right before I did the Garden at MoMA PS1. And she said to me, oh, well, on Tuesday, I'm actually going to Heritage Radio to be on the Cherry Bomb uh, podcast. Just come with me. And I was like, that's a little stalker Yeah, uh, I've been like emailing Carrie yeah. and I haven't heard back. I think that's a little bit. She was like, just come with me. And I was like, okay. And I didn't even know her that well. And I showed up with her, uh, not to be on the show, but right. just to like I face to face. Story. And it was like a quasi, I mean, you, this is, it's a good story because it's those moments where you're like, oh, should I be, should I push this extra mile or, you know, like, or did I already go far enough? And I did and I showed up and she was, introduced me to Carrie and Carrie's like, oh, you're doing this thing at PS1. We should definitely have you in the next issue. And Claudia and Carrie right there, I was in the next issue. And, like, bam, thank you, Alex. And just, like, you know, we've been able to do events together since. Alex and I, we did one event together with Chopped, actually. And um, so for me, it's people like that. Like, I mean, Alex has two amazing kids and four restaurants, and she still has time to to give to younger women who are trying to break into a field that she's been in for so long and it's really amazing we we have uh the latest entry in the hall of dames thank you yes um so my guest today has been julia sherman thank you so much for listening to follow my adventures you can find me at fw scout on instagram and twitter as well as at speaking broadly and to follow Julia Sherman, you can follow her at Salad for President. Um, is it Instagram that has the number four? Uh, Twitter has the number four, Salad for, for President, President, and Instagram just Salad for President. Um, all of my shows are archived at heritageradionetwork.org, iTunes, and Stitcher. I'd love it if you would subscribe or give me feedback. I'd love to hear a new name for the Hall of Dames. <laughs> <laughs> oh, did somebody already say Alex? 
Uh, no, no, oh. a, a new name for the a new name. Oh. Sorry, a new name. Instead of calling it Hall of Dames, oh. because no one really exactly knows what it is, it's just really great women that um, I admire and that the guests admire. Um, I wanted to thank my engineer David. Awesome, and all of you listeners, thanks, and come back next week noon on Wednesdays. <laughs> thank you. Listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening. 